Hello and welcome to This Is Modern Rock. I'm Will Westerkow and we are back for the 1991 season. Today I am joined by Jonathan Moore. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Jonathan, you are uh, you're a musician? Yeah. You've got a band called Streetcar Conductors? Streetcar Conductors, yep. That's my main project. I sing and play drums mm-hmm. and do uh, a lot of the songwriting, but it's uh, got other songwriters in it too, so we're kind of a collaborative type of thing. Uh, how would you describe Streetcar Conductors? I would describe Streetcar Conductors as under the umbrella of power pop, mm-hmm. um, but we're, we're more on the heavier side of power pop, like sort of early Weezer and a little bit of like Fountains of Wayne mm-hmm. type of stuff and definitely mm-hmm. some Beach Boys harmonies from time to time. I've listened to some of your stuff. I've seen you play, and uh, there's a lot to like. Thanks. A lot of influences there that I really enjoy. Is there like a point where like you discovered modern rock? There was a moment in time, and it was right around 1994 or 95. Yeah. My parents were into old-timey gospel kind of stuff, oh. and I grew up listening to that on vinyl, okay. and that was pretty much it. I grew up, God's gonna travel the water, you know, That's uh, and choirs and religious music. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's like most of what I had heard. Sure. Uh, And I heard all this rock music right around that time because there was that great explosion of all this alternative music, which made its way into the mainstream. And Mm -hmm. uh, Weezer's Blue Album was probably one of the first. That left a lasting impact on me. Yeah, I got really into rock music and wanted to start a band right away. And uh, me and my friends as a 13, 14 year old, you know, group of friends, we we went through several stages. We wanted to be punks at one point, which is hilarious when yeah. you're that age. You yeah. want to be tough. I want to be punk. How'd that work out? It lasted maybe three months, you know. Okay. And then we found a Moog synthesizer in a Goodwill oh, because nice. in the 90s that would still happen. Uh-huh. <laughs> But uh, yeah, we got we discovered synthesizers, and that really changed the sound. Mm-hmm. And that type of stuff, yeah. that new wave uh, slash power pop kind of sound that was real big in the 80s, I heard it in passing, but I really went back and rediscovered it at that time in yeah. the 90s. Once we found synthesizers and started using them, we're like, mm-hmm. oh, what kind of sounds can these you know make in 90s music, you know, and not and kind of going back and taking elements of the new wave aesthetic and kind of putting it into that. Power pop, I guess, is mm-hmm. what you call it. Although I think synthesizers were largely uh, on the outs in, in 90s alternative music. Mm-hmm. At least once we get to like the mid-late 90s. Yeah. But, um, they've definitely made a comeback. They did make a huge comeback. And I'm proud to say that I liked it before it was mm. cool. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, that uh... Yeah, no, you liked it after it was cool, but before it was cool again. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I was way behind the times, actually, Uh is what it was. But I'd like to say that I was uh, ahead of my time. Yeah. Well, (laughs) if you wait long enough, right? That's what I say. It comes back around. That's Mm -hmm. that happens, you know. So this is a special bonus episode. Instead of just jumping right into January, we're going to be talking all about one particular artist and. This person is named Rick Ocasek. Actually, I take that back. I need to work on this because apparently his name is Rick Ocasek. Ocasek, is that how you say it? That's how you say it. And uh, I was going to wait for you to say I've, it. I've always first. said Ocasek. Now I know. So, yes, we're going to be talking about Rick Ocasek. Why are we talking about him? Well, for one thing, he's a huge influence on me and my musical taste. He's been a, a huge influence on a lot of other modern rock bands. And he also passed away last September. 
Yes, very sad. Yeah, and you know, when, when, when he died in September... I definitely saw some articles online. I read some some tributes and things like that. But I feel like there was a, a general lack of appreciation. Yeah. Not that people weren't appreciating him, but I just feel like he should have been recognized a lot more. Yeah. Rick produced a lot of great stuff, made a lot of great music, left a big impact. When you look at just the amount of music he produced mm-hmm. and the amount of music he made, yeah. both with the cars and with his solo yeah. career yeah absolutely so i've got kind of a rule on this show i don't just bring up bands that i like for no reason they have to actually have some kind of significance on the modern rock charts okay thankfully rick okasik makes one appearance on the modern rock charts and he does it in 1991 really only one only one yeah and part of the reason for that is because most of his solo albums and all of the cars albums happened before the modern rock charts existed the cars were on the pop charts, though, mm, The cars right? were on the pop charts, yeah. yeah. All right, well, how about this? We'll, we'll listen to uh, this solo song because it's on the charts here, and then we'll kind of go back and dig in a little deeper. Okay. Okay. So in 1991, Rick Ocasek released his final solo album called Fireball Zone. <laughs> Wow, he was he was in the zone for yeah, that one. The, yeah, that's the fireball zone. You know, I I can't help picturing uh, uh, who's that dude from Street Fighter Two <laughs> through those fireballs. <laughs> that was about that time, right? Right. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Okasik, he was a huge Street Fighter fan. That's what I'm discovering right Must now. Must have been. Rick Okasik released two solo albums while he was still a member of the Cars, and both of them were top forty albums. But 1991's Fireball Zone was his first post Cars release. There was one single released from the album. It's called Rock Away, and it reached number 19 on the Modern Rock Charts in July 1991. Here we go. Rock Away. On the raceway, it's a douche. cool song yeah it's really rock rocking away there it did it had that section where i think the bass dropped out and mm-hmm. the guitars kind of thinned out and it's like that clapping over uh-huh. your head kind of section yeah you know, that they used to have in rock songs like yeah. i love that it was it, yeah it was fun yeah yeah this was not one that i was familiar with uh prior to researching for the show yeah i'm having trouble figuring out whether i enjoy it because i love the cars so much and Obviously, it's going to remind me of the cars to some right. extent. Right, yeah. Um, it reminds me of the cars, too. Yeah. But it's a little more kind of arena rocking or mm-hmm. something. Oh, yeah. Know? There's the the solo in there. And yeah. It, the solo... solo's kind of shreddy. It's, it is shreddy. It's almost starting to verge on a little hair metal. Like, not quite, yeah. but, but a bit. 91 was just between when hair metal had sort of started dying out, but a lot of the alternative rock sounds hadn't quite come into the mainstream yet. So it was kind of a weird twilight zone there for music. To me, I think the difference between this and a Cars song is when I think of the Cars, they're poppy, 
but there's usually something a little a little weird, a little off or a little arty or a right. little like and, and I feel like this is more of like a straight up pop. I'm You're not, right. You're yeah. totally right cuz the cars had that new wave quirkiness mm-hmm. that's that's uh, almost totally missing from this song. Yeah. It's more of a straightforward rock and roll kind of yeah. number. Yeah. There's some lyrics that are maybe a little quirky. He's talking about, I don't know, being in a nutshell or something. I'm not sure, but yeah, he always did write some interesting lyrics. Mm-hmm. You know, and and they have a certain rhythm to them that kind of only he could sing, I think. Yeah. It's very hard, like if you try to do a car song at karaoke. Huh, it's interesting. It's hard to really match his meter some of the time, you know? I've never tried, but that's, yeah, it's interesting. All right, well, cool, Rockaway. I'm glad he made it onto the modern rock charts. Yeah, me too. I think a lot of people were probably wanting to listen to this because they were fans of the cars and so right. it's like a nostalgia thing yeah but you know pretty good song I, you know i think it deserved to be here yeah yeah it's a it's a it's a rocking song it's that snare drum sound is uh it makes me smile because it's nostalgic to me now mm-hmm. it, it's a very 1991 snare drum sound yeah it's not quite the gated reverb of the 80s uh-huh it's kind of you know there it, it is that but they've toned it way down now it's because we're going into the 90s now that's always interesting when people bring up drum stuff like that because drums is like the one instrument in the band that i like cannot play and i know almost nothing about and i i hear the drums but i don't like hear them you yeah know? yeah drum and, sounds can really date an album yeah because you know you, you get uh you get in this mode of oh now we discovered we could you know put this kind of reverb on the snare and it's really cool and people haven't done it before and uh and then that becomes not fashionable anymore mm-hmm. so then you find different ways to do it or you, you know some eras of music have really dry thuddy kind of drum sounds and some have this real open you know spacious yeah. sound i can usually tell the around the year that a recording was made by the drum sounds oh, that's interesting yeah i i could not i Someday maybe I'll go and like listen carefully for drums and see if I yeah. can pick that stuff out. Why don't we why don't we dig a little deeper? Go we'll go back in time. We'll talk a little about the cars. Yeah. And then we'll talk about some work that Rico Kasich produced. Sweet. Yeah. Rico Kasich, he was born in nineteen forty four. He died in two thousand nineteen. This guy is a uh, a very striking figure. He's he's tall. I think he's six foot four. He has this lanky kind of almost Ichabod Crane. Yeah, like exactly. That's a good way to describe it. Stature. Yeah. Know. And uh, he was born Richard Ott Cassick, but yeah, he dropped the that. T. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. He just dropped the one letter from yeah. his name. I wonder what difference that made. If I had to guess, I would say it, it somehow seems less ethnic. <laughs> Whatever that means. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a... A great American pastime yes. is anglicizing <laughs> yes, uh, names. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Although I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that um, at least some of his sons still uh, use Ott Kasich as their last name. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. So he's a singer, songwriter, guitarist, producer, a painter, apparently. I've looked up some of his paintings. And <laughs> he was doing music for a long time. He met fellow Cars uh, singer, Ben Orr, in 1965 while he was living in Cleveland, Ohio. And over the next decade, Okasik and Orr, they played in a bunch of bands together, including uh, something called Id Nirvana or ID Nirvana. I'm not really sure. I've, I've heard of this. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The original Nirvana, but <laughs> it was it, Id Nirvana. The, be- the better Nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's so interesting to me that he made music for that long before 
the cars yeah. officially formed and before they found any success. It's kind of encouraging to me as a musician. Yeah, honestly. absolutely. It's like absolutely. He, had, he was hitting it hard for many years and probably trying a lot of different sounds. He, trying he certainly things. was. Um, some of these bands, Cap and Swing, Richard and the Rabbits. I haven't heard any of these, but he was in a band called Milkwood and they put out one album in 1973. So just keep that in mind. He met Ben Orr in 1965. First album, 1973, Milkwood. The album's called How's the Weather. And if you're a Cars fan and you want to check out the old stuff to see like where the, the origins of the Cars, you're not going to hear it here. Milkwood sounds nothing at all like the Cars. Interesting. Like pretty much no indication of the direction they're going to take in the future. Hmm. But I still think it's worth checking out because the cover features a mustachioed Rico Cassick. Oh, awesome. Yeah, which is That's great. pretty fun. It was the 70s after all. That's know. true. Absolutely. Would you like to hear just a short clip of uh, a Milkwood song? Yeah. I'm very curious to hear this because I didn't even know this existed. We're going to hear Time Train Wonder Wheel by Milkwood. Okay, so it was, it was Crosby, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. That's, yeah, that was real interesting. I yeah. mean, so different than what he would go on to do. Oh, totally. Interesting arrangement on the song, of those vocal harmonies, you know? Yeah. So throughout all these bands, as they went along, they kept picking up future Cars members. So at some point, they grabbed keyboardist Greg Hawks, who played previously with a band called Martin Mole and the Fabulous Furniture. And that is the same Martin Mull who later went on to uh, star as Roseanne's boss. And he Amazing. played Colonel Mustard in the movie Clue. Wow. <laughs> Whoa, that's some deep trivia. Yeah. Uh, they picked up lead guitarist Elliot Easton, who I just want to give a shout out to because I think this guy is very underrated. I love his solos in car songs. He brings them in. They blow my mind. They're short. He gets them done with. He gets out. To the point. Melodic. Mm-hmm. You're just not going to yeah. waste time. Exactly. Yeah. Right He's not a time waster. Event. Yeah. There were a lot of bands in, in the 70s playing solos that were wasting my time. That's true. And I feel like Okasik was probably... Judging from what we just listened to and how his music changed, he kind of got into this scene of arty, early punk kind of mm-hmm. scene yeah. uh, where it was sort of, okay, let's shorten the songs and let's like make a more economic kind of Absolutely. arrangements yeah. and moving away from the jam mm-hmm. type of stuff that was going on. Yeah. What else? They picked up drummer David Robinson, who was formerly in The Modern Lovers. So the cars, let's talk about the cars. As you said... I think they were influenced by punk that was just happening. Um, oh, definitely. Yeah. They're like a, an early new wave band. Yeah. But yeah. they also have like they have touches of classic rock. They've got touches of power pop. They've got yeah. touches of art rock. Okasik was notably a big fan of the Velvet Underground, but he also loved the Carpenters, right? Interesting, yeah. He, he loved his pop. He loved his arty rock. That and, makes sense, actually, because mm-hmm. you can hear both of those elements yeah. at different times in their music, and sometimes at the same time, which is what's so cool about a lot of that new wave 
uh, yeah. era, you know, stuff. I, I I would consider the cars to be mostly power pop, but there are some songs where I listen to, oh, that's more of a new wave kind of song. Mm-hmm. So it really depends. Yeah. And yet, like, this is a band that definitely gets play on classic rock radio. Yeah. I feel like it sounds like a recipe for disaster. Like, they're trying to appeal to to too many different audiences and yet i feel like they are absolutely successful like yeah they do appeal to every audience i, I think it's good songwriting i think if mm-hmm. you write a good song yeah. you can arrange it any which way and it'll still be a good song and that's you know he just had that gift for that you know yeah the cars uh put out their first album in i want to say 1978 self-titled album yeah 78 they lost the best new artist grammy to a taste of honey if you remember them no from way. their their hit Boogie Oogie Oogie. No way. They did. That is a crime <laughs> against music. Yeah. <laughs> that self-titled album. Oh, it's good. There are few albums I would consider to be perfect albums and I think in my subjective opinion, <laughs> I think that that is a perfect album. I I think it's it, because it's a studio album, but it's got so many great songs on it that it might as well be there greatest mm-hmm. hits it yeah it, it's it's really good so yeah the first album was produced by roy thomas baker who also produced huge albums for queen he's the guy that layered the bazillion vocals over bohemian rhapsody so he did night at the opera mm-hmm. wow yeah that's uh, quite a producer which is really interesting because right the cars debut album does not sound like a night at the opera no it's it, more of a drivey, straightforward rock yeah, record. Yeah, like every but, instrument's got their part, and yeah. they come together, and they do their job. But yeah, it's not show-offy. It's not right. like a million layers. Although I think I did read that on some of the vocal harmonies, there actually are like a million layers. Good Times Roll. I think when they when they yeah. do the, the chorus or whatever, Good Times Roll, I think it's like, that like makes hundreds sense, of vocals coming in. It's really a big wall of vocals, but just for that one little part, they, they arrange mm-hmm. it so well yeah. that it's it doesn't come across as a huge wall of sound. It's just like, it's a song that just works. Yeah. Know? So we're going to listen to a car song because uh, they're awesome and we should. And I think the obvious choice to listen to would have been just what I needed. That's like, I think that's the one people think of when they it's hear the, the cars. classic rock the radio cla- hit. The classic rock radio hit, yeah. But that song is actually sung by Ben Orr. Rick Ocasek and Ben Orr frequently traded off vocals. And one of the really interesting things about that is that after singing together for so long, their voices kind of started to sound similar. And if you know there's two singers and you really listen for it, you can pick Ocasek out. He's just a little quirkier sounding. Interesting. Um, But they do have a very similar vocal style. I actually didn't know that that song was sung by Orr. Yeah, that's, uh, wow, that's blowing my mind right now. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. You get listen to it, you go, that's Ocasek, yeah. And then you listen to one Ocasek sings, you're like, oh, no, yeah, now I get it. Like, it's just a little yeah. more, I don't know. I'm going to have to listen for that now. So we're going to hear My Best Friend's Girl. This was released as the second single from the Cars debut album, but it was getting radio play in Boston as a demo along with Just What I Needed, before the album was even recorded back in 77. That's badass. If the demo version yes. of your song is that good, absolutely, yeah, it's a good song. Yeah, and and the song hit number 35 in the Hot 100. It was number three in the UK, which made it their biggest UK hit of all time. And just in case anyone's curious, it was not written about anyone in particular. Okasik was just looking for uh, things to write songs about, and he figured having a girlfriend stolen was probably... Uh, 
a common occurrence. Universally relatable. Yeah. 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 So well, here we go. Let's listen to my best friend's girl and then we can talk a little bit about it. Here she comes again when she's the starry sky. Yeah, that was a, a real pleasure to listen to. What a fun song. You know, it's just, yeah, yeah you got to smile listening to that. You yeah. Know? I love the way it starts. It's just got the, the simple guitar and the hand claps. And uh, and then, like, there's that moment where everything kicks in and, like, there's that synth yes. that goes, like, and the drums, and, the, yes. you know, those big toms kick in. It doesn't know the real surprise. Here she comes again. Yeah. Oh, it's such a good moment. And uh, it's got that fantastic, uh, almost Buddy Holly-ish kind of guitar riff. That mm-hmm. little... Yeah. It reminds me of something I'd hear in a Buddy Holly song. And yeah. I, I know that Okasik really loved that Buddy... music and, yep. you know, that mm-hmm. early 60s kind of stuff. Absolutely, yeah. I think he was a big Buddy Holly fan. And I've read that Buddy Holly was like maybe the biggest influence on his vocal style. That makes sense, too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to say the Cars are my very favorite band of all time, but for me, the Cars complete greatest hits. It's like that is the epitome of what like rock pop singles should sound like. Right. It's, it's like sort of perfect for what it, it is. It's it, a perfect it really single. Is. Yeah, and not just this song, but like all of their singles. Yeah, just they're so great. Particularly that album, just mm-hmm. start to finish. I think you know, just mm-hmm. fill one hit after another. It's know? great. Yeah, and even some of the songs that weren't released as singles, they sound like singles. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of what I aspire to. Mm-hmm. to try to create something where each song can stand on its own. Yeah. That album's an example of that. There's so many bands who have been influenced by the Cars. Yeah. And I don't want to just like list them all in one go, but uh, kind of as we go along, I might throw some out there. Sure. So, yeah. So. Um, Here's a band that was clearly influenced by not just the cars, but maybe by my best friend's girl in particular. This is Fountains of Wayne with Stacy's mom. I'm not going to play the whole song, but... Yeah, we know that well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and here's one you may not have heard. This is a They Might Be Giant song. It's kind of an obscure one they did for uh, like a venue songs oh, thing they did. They were cool. writing songs for various venues. I heard about at. that project. I heard some of it on their podcast because uh-huh. I was a regular TMBG podcast listener at that time. Yeah. So the, I may have heard it, never, but yeah. it's been a while if the, I have. <laughs> this one, I think, goes beyond inspired by to maybe like... Kind of borrowing, <laughs> maybe, yeah, little, yeah, something, yeah, something. a little bit, yeah. So, this is <laughs> we've called, all done it. Yep, yeah. this is called Vancouver by They Might Be Giants. She doesn't ride a motorbike, she says it doesn't fit her, but she always wears a monocle. Richard's on Richard's, you know what I mean. Richards. 
lot of fun. Here's a couple more things. Kurt Cobain, when he got his guitar, one of the very first songs that he learned how to play was My Best Friend's Girl. Interesting. And it's also one of the last songs he played live, opening with it at Nirvana's final concert in Munich on March 1st, 1994. No mm-hmm. 1994. That's right. Wow. All right. So uh, the cars continue on. They put out a lot of great albums. Couple not so great albums, but a number of just totally fantastic ones. Yeah. And Rick Ocasek, at the same time, he's putting out a few solo albums, but he also wants to branch out and he starts thinking about producing. And there's a lot of stuff he's produced. We definitely can't listen to all of it. But one thing that, that really strikes me is the bands he chooses to produce for, it's never like some huge, mega successful superstar band. It's usually something that's kind of odd, arty, something that just he stumbled upon or he wanted to do someone a favor. Yeah, you could tell he produced artists that he thought were interesting Mm -hmm. and and doing something special and something unique, and he cared more about that than whether they were going to be the next big thing. Uh, When he produced uh, Weezer, he had only heard what's called the kitchen tape demos, Mm -hmm. and the way Okasik described it, it was basically... A wall of guitar noise, yeah, with some music sprinkled into it. And uh-huh. <laughs> apparently, he listened to that and went, "This is awesome!" And yeah, yeah I want to produce this band. And so they didn't even really have the Weezer sound completely yet, mm-hmm. but they developed that as they went along. And you know, sure, that album. He's he's the uh, fifth Weezer. He really is. And uh, I remember hearing an interview with Okasik where he said that everyone always thought it was him that mm-hmm. suggested the synthesizers uh-huh. but he always wanted to say no that was that was totally Rivers Cuomo like he, okay. he really wanted to have the analog synthesizers and I was like nah you guys don't need that but they they really wanted that oh interesting yeah yeah i didn't know that okay so yeah back in the uh, in the 80s okasic produced a couple albums for suicide kind of a, an arty new york band he produced some stuff for bad brains the hardcore washington dc punk group and he produced an EP for a band called Romeo Void. And that's where we're going to be listening to a song from. This is a band that was formed in 1979 in San Francisco around a female singer who is a Cowlitz Native American named Deborah Eall. Cool fact about her. Apparently in 1969, when she was 14 years old, she joined the occupation of Alcatraz for six days. I don't know if you're familiar with this thing, but a bunch of Native Americans took over Alcatraz Island for a while, Whoa. and there was like a big standoff. So that's what she was doing as a... As a 14-year-old, yeah. She was... <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's pretty hardcore. She, yeah. She, she was getting some punk cred right there. Seriously. Yeah. This song that you're about to play is a huge hit in the early 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Was uh, it, a, was it well, a big hit, or am I remembering I, that wrong? I would say that it was a huge hit in certain like alternative radio markets. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I've definitely heard it a lot. Yeah. But, but maybe all, it wasn't well, uh Yeah, it, it also has legs. Hit. Yeah. It, so it wasn't like a big Hot 100 hit. Right. Um, the song we're going to hear is called Never Say Never, but it continues to live on. It's one of those songs that maybe didn't chart super well back then, but uh, it's since been featured in Grand Theft Auto Vice City. It was in the Punisher movie, Wolf of Wall Street, that Dodgeball movie. Okay. Um, I knew I had heard it in multiple Yeah. So yeah, you've heard it around. People have heard the song probably. How did Okasa get involved? After uh, Romeo Void's first album dropped in 1981, 
Okasik reached out himself. He contacted the band and he just invited them to Boston to record just because he was a fan and he thought it was cool. I think that's just pretty sweet. Usually it's the other way around. The artists are like, oh, we've got to find a producer. Let's chase them down and yeah, beg them and pay active. the money. He was, yeah. He was going out watching bands and listening to demos and trying to find something that excited him musically, mm-hmm. I guess. you know. Yeah. So here we go. Romeo Voids, Never Say Never. This is from 1982. I got to say, the singer, Deborah Eall, she's got attitude to spare. She, oh, yeah. <laughs> she sounds just so cool. Yeah, it's definitely got that new wave quirkiness, but it's got a punk attitude. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got both of those things going on at the same time, and it's got that really tough bass line. Yeah. I love that kind of bass, where it's just growly and obviously played with a pick and just really aggressive. You mm-hmm. Know? Does it almost seem like it's dance punk in some ways? Sort of in that post-punk kind of way, uh-huh. where it's a little more dancey. Yeah, I can uh, I can picture people at like like abandoned warehouse party, right? Like really really getting down to this one. I think that was the idea for a lot of that post-punk stuff. Maybe not all of it, but uh-huh. a lot of it is is dancey. Yeah, cool. All right, so um, that's the one we're gonna hear from the '80s. There's a lot of things we could listen to from the '90s. Rico Kasich produced Weezer's debut album what's commonly known as the Blue Album. But at some point, this show is definitely going to be featuring Weezer songs from that album, and we're going to talk about that in a lot of depth. Yeah. So I thought we'd instead stick to bands that maybe won't get another chance to appear on the show. So I picked a couple bands from the 90s. The first one I want to talk about is a band called Nada Surf. These guys are generally remembered as being one-hit wonders, but they have kind of a, a cool story with Rico Kasich, so I just thought I'd bring it up. Basically, it says the band formed in 1992. They were, you know, doing their thing, made a demo. But one day at a blonde redhead show, the lead singer from Not A Surf just happened to bump into Rico Kasich, who was going into the venue as he was leaving. And he said, I can't miss this opportunity. Hey, Rick, like, I know who you are. Here's my demo tape. Like, would you please take a listen? Uh, And he didn't really think too much about it, but Rick took it home and two or three weeks later called him up. And not only did he say like, yeah, I listened to this and it's cool, but he said, I'd produce you. So as soon as you've got yourself a a record label or whatever, like come my way, I would love to do this. That's quite a story. Yeah, it says a lot. It says a lot. I mean, it's it's like a fairy tale dream come true, but it's also, it also says a lot about Rick Okasik and that he didn't just throw it in the garbage. Right. You know, he took the time to listen. He took the time to call. That's very cool. Yeah. And uh, that song of theirs, that was their big hit, Mm -hmm. I know it was a big hit because I was in eighth or ninth grade and it was all over the place and you just heard it all the time Mm -hmm. and what an odd song to be such a big hit it is an odd song it's a very strange song it almost has this delivery that feels like it could have been emo or hardcore kind Mm -hmm. of thing except 
in that context, it would have been really serious. Mm-hmm. And this is completely sarcastic. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so uh, for those of you who don't know, Not A Surf, the song we're going to listen to is called Popular. And this is an interesting one because the verses from the song come from uh, a book called Penny's Guide to Teenage Charm and Popularity, which was an etiquette book for teenage girls published in 1964. And the singer Matthew Cause bought it at Salvation Army, and he thought the advice was so dreadful that he <laughs> decided to put it into a brilliant. song. Yeah, that's a brilliant idea. And I guess it was a actress who wrote it who was writing in character as her, you know, the the teenage uh-huh. character of the television show. I can't remember what show it was, but uh, I thought that was pretty hilarious that yeah. they would use that for the verses of the song. And uh-huh. then in the video. They mess around with the concept of what if you actually followed that advice and the mm. absurdity that follows. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, let's listen to the song. I think many of you have probably heard this. This actually was uh, a modern rock hit in 1996. I believe it reached number 11. Here we go. Here's a, here's a clip from Popular. Make sure to keep your hair spotless and clean. Wash it at least every two weeks. Once every two weeks. And if you see Johnny Football Hero in the hall, tell him he played a great game. Tell him he liked his article in the newspaper. It struck me listening to it again after a long time that it shares some sonic similarities to the sweater song mm-hmm. by yeah. Weezer, which uh, I know is also an Okasic production. Right. It opens with uh, some kind of spoken words. It, it doesn't sound like poetry. It just sounds like some people kind of having a conversation right. or ranting about over something. a very strange kind of guitar riff, which is which mm-hmm. is what happens in. Yes. Sweater song. Yeah. I, I love how serious he is about it. He's like, yes, you got to wash your hair at least. <laughs> it really does. It reminds me of a breakdown in some really serious emo song or something uh-huh. where where someone would be just revealing their soul or something. But it's this advice from a, yeah. <laughs> from a teenage etiquette book. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Now, is it noticeably Okasic produced to you? Like... I, I didn't know it was until I started doing research. I can't remember the time. I, I don't believe that I heard it and thought like, hmm, that sounds like, uh, you know. You know, I didn't know either. And I, it makes sense to me after listening to it because I hear the similarities to the Blue Album in mm-hmm. particular. But other than that, I wouldn't have necessarily put it together. Yeah. So it's not like Okasik has this uh, super trademark thing that he does. I think some songs, some albums, there's similarities for sure. Yeah. But it's not like he's throwing on a synthesizer here. No, and, and I think doing the just, hand claps or whatever. Yeah, he wanted to bring out the best in whatever mm-hmm. band he was producing and just help them to be the best version of whatever sound they were doing. And I think he liked a lot of different kinds of music, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, he enjoyed yeah. a lot of different styles. Yeah. This was the perfect song for being in high school because it just made fun of all of the crap that Uh was so stupid in high school and and kids who felt like oh i'm too smart for you know (laughs) this like preppy high school experience you know related to that song Mm -hmm. you know yeah because it made a mockery of the setting your life was taking place in you know yeah uh okay so that was from 96 we're gonna hear one more from the 90s just because i felt like it so we've got a band here called guided by voices this is maybe the most prolific band that I've ever come across. Uh, they're an indie rock band formed in Dayton, Ohio, 1983. 
and they're known mostly for like kind of a lo-fi kind of sound, very short songs, sometimes very abrupt endings, very tuneful, but a lot of lyrics that don't really seem to mean anything. Yeah, Robert Pollard, he was a song machine. Song, Just yes. crank it out. You oh, know? yeah. Just, and don't stop to reflect too much on any piece of it. Just mm-hmm. You just write a song, you record it, crank it out. That seemed to be his approach. Yeah. I had a, um, not a roommate, but in, in the dormitory hall in college, there was a kid who lived like right across the hall from me. And he got really into Guided by Voices. This was maybe like 2001. And I remember him coming back from a record store one day and he was just having this this breakdown. He's like, I'm trying to collect everything Robert Pollard's ever released and there's too much of it. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. There yeah. really is a lot. Yeah. A lot of it's really good too. It's, I mean, the the amount of it that's really good. Mm-hmm. Is impressive. Yes, it's a certain aesthetic. Mm-hmm. If if you're into that and you're patient with you know an album taking you thirty different you know uh-huh. places, and, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's a different kind of listening experience than other albums for yeah. sure. Not everyone's into it, but I always enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. So in 1999, Guided by Voices put out their eleventh studio album called Do the Collapse, and this album was produced by Rick Ocasek, and critics and fans didn't seem to particularly like it at the time. It is a much slicker, more produced work than anything they had done up to that point. And in fact, Robert Pollard said that he'd never worked with a producer before. Like not just not worked with a expensive, fancy huh. producer, but he'd never actually had any producer for 10 albums. Um, oh, wow. He produced it himself? Yeah, I, I assume so. Yeah, he produced yeah. his first 10 albums himself. And so... Um, this was like a first for him. And even though a lot of people didn't seem to like it, he said that he chose Rick Okasik because specifically he liked the guitar sound on uh, Weezer's Blue album, which he described as that big, crunchy, in-your-face guitar sound. Um, and that's what he wanted Rick to do for Guided by Voices. And uh, Robert Pollard was happy with the results. He said, like, this is what I wanted. And this is what I got. Yeah. And so it is different. It sounds very different than previous Guided by Voices albums. And I think that's really a tricky thing, you know? Like, I think it's easier to accept a a 70-second lo-fi song just for what it is when it sounds lo-fi. But as soon as you start recording it with more expensive gear and put kind of a sparkle and gloss on it, suddenly like that same song it just doesn't sound right it feels like there's something lacking you start going like well where's the rest of the song where's that's an interesting point because not every production style works for every Mm -hmm. kind of song yeah and so that might have been part of the problem maybe some of the songs just weren't quite as good as uh on some previous albums but there were a few singles on this album that i think turned out really nicely and one of them is a song called teenage fbi which we're going to hear doesn't quite sound like uh, most guided by voices, but I, I still think it's got some cool things to it. So here it is Teenage FBI.
I got a uh, a free download MP3 of that song, probably in 1999, uh, in wow. the in the early days of of MP3 downloads. Yeah, did it um, sound any good? <laughs> it did. I liked it a lot, and it. Sound, I mean, the quality of the sound. Yeah, was. I think so. I think the I think the sound quality was fine. I mean, it's as fine as I could tell from like through my crappy computer speakers. Right. Right. Yeah, but this is a song that. I like, I don't know if I'd say I love it, but somehow it continues to this day, like what is this, 20 years later, to still jump into my head randomly and I'll just be walking around. Someone tell me why. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real catchy song. It's a real catchy song, yeah. Yeah. And it's got some hooks and it really, you know, that it's got some cool bass tones Mm -hmm. and nice little synth thing in there. And it's it's a, you're right uh, when you said it, it was a more slick production mm-hmm. than what you normally hear from Guided by Voices, but um, I, I like it. I think it's cool. Yeah, and this one, uh, of all the songs on this album, this is the one that has the clearest Cars influence, I think. Definitely. Yeah. You can really hear. You can hear it in, in the guitar technique. You can yeah. hear it in the synth. Yeah. And that is cool when you can hear the producer's influence mm-hmm. you know, in the music. It's nice that he was able to sort of get out of the way when the band was doing something different, but he could also put his unique stamp on certain songs. Sure. And I wonder how much of that was Robert Pollard being a Cars fan and saying like, I'm going to write this song and it kind of sounds like the Cars or, and how much of it was uh, Rico Cassick going like, huh, I think we could make this sound kind of Cars-y. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. My understanding of this is how Rico Cassick ended up working with Guided by Voices is Rick was doing some work. I think he was on tour, maybe doing some solo stuff and he was working with Melissa Aftermare from Hole. Oh, really? Yeah, she was playing guitar with him, and she handed him uh, a Guided by Voices mix that she had put together. and was like, listen to this. I think you'll like it. And he listened to it. He's like, all right, cool. I do like this. Let's, uh, let's talk to these Guided by Voices guys. And then I think uh, Robert Pollard reached out to Rico Kasich at just about the same time. And it was just kind of this, this really nice coincidence that, that they were both interested in each other simultaneously. That's very cool. Yeah. Let's go to the 2000s. We got just a few more we're going to listen to. We got a band called La Tigra. Was that Kathleen? Yeah, Kathleen Hanna. Yeah. From, uh... She was in Bikini Kill. She had a band called The Julie Ruin, but she's a, a notable riot girl. Yeah, uh, she, she came out of that scene. Uh-huh. She's a punk zinester, so she made zines. And she's also the spouse of Beastie Boy Adam Horowitz. I didn't know that. Wow. A.K.A. Ad Rock. Interesting. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, Latika is more of like a dance rock band, kind of, but frequently with uh, socio-political lyrics dealing with feminist or LGBT issues, things like so that. So that carried over from mm-hmm. the previous yeah. projects, but in a different sort of aesthetic. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a trio. And in 2004, they released, their, I think, their third album called This Island. And I had a real hard time finding information about this one because there, there's three credited producers on this album, Rick Ocasek being one of them. And... I had to dig real deep, and I think I discovered that only one song that he produced actually made it onto the final album, but I couldn't find out any explanation why that was, or what the history was, or it seemed like he had produced some other things, and then they got rid of most of them and redid some of them, and uh, so so only one song, it's called Tell You Now, uh, actually made it onto the album. Interesting Uh, that he produced that one, but not 
the entire record. Yeah. That's, that's not too often that I see that. I guess in mainstream pop, you see it sometimes. Yeah. Um, and actually, uh, No Doubt's Rocksteady album, really? a similar thing happened, but that's more of a mainstream situation where yeah. they just grabbed various producers and said, you do this song, you do this song. Yeah. So Okasek produced one song for No Doubt, and that one's actually pretty fun too. I would have liked to listen to that, but um, I think we're going to hear from No Doubt at some point on this show. Interesting. Okay, so yeah, we're going to listen to uh, La Tigre's song, Tell You Now, and this is especially strange to me that Rico Kasich only did one song on the album, because I've listened to the rest of the album, and there's songs I like, but this is a clear favorite for me. I just really like it. Um, yeah. It sounds better. It's a missed opportunity, probably. I, th- I think so, yeah. but who knows? Uh, somebody knows. If someone knows, they can they can call in and tell me and... Maybe Rico Kasich was a big jerk. Right. There's some kind of story there. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Here it is. Tell you now. I was kind of listening, trying to hear like wh- whether there was some message or some like angry, like diatribe going on the song. But uh, yeah, where's I, the riot girl? Yeah, angst. Exactly. It seems like some it's of, pretty chill. Some of the riot had had chilled at that point. <laughs> well, you know, I guess you can't be angry forever. Yeah, or, well, or, you know, or they, on every song. Well, exactly, and that's the thing. I, when you love a band, not that I, I, I'm saying I love Bikini Kill, but like sometimes you do. You love angsty bands, and then when they get over that angst you're kind of mad at them you're like oh why don't you sound like you used to sound but we really we should be happy for them like right <laughs> we don't want them to be miserable their whole life we don't want them to be angry and pissed off for for decades i know it's that really strange uh goose that laid the golden egg scenario uh-huh. there are things to be upset about in the world for sure but uh as an artist i've found that you can't dwell on or write about the same things Year after year, decade after decade, you just gotta switch it up, yeah. or else you're you're getting into the the area of being formulaic and repeating yourself. And I think, especially for people who had roots in the punk scene, it just I, I think that playing that same song, releasing the same kind of album forever, just is not sure appealing. Yeah, and I can imagine that's a big reason why Okasik wanted to go solo and branch out and produce and, and put it into the cars. I will say this about the cars. Rick Okasik said after they broke up that they would never, ever, ever reform. There was no chance that they would ever get back together. Other band members were saddened by that, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but in 2005, a couple former cars, uh, Easton and Hawks, they teamed up with Todd Rundgren to form the new cars, no way. Yeah. Blasphemy. <laughs> Heretic. And yeah, they went out on tour. I don't think they put any albums out, but yeah, they were touring around as the Oh, they were touring. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, that people do that kind of stuff, and as far as I can see, the fans' response to that is always, whatever. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> I, I, although it is Todd Rungren, who's amazing. Yeah. But... Yeah. It's not the cars. <laughs> well, exactly, and I, I mean, it's like it's you know, Queen Queen was out on tour a few years back with uh, Paul Rogers. Is that 
the, yeah. the guy from Bad Company. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I want to hear those Queen songs. I love those Queen songs. And we got three quarters of Queen there. So I don't know. It's like a... Maybe it's actually good, but it's not Queen. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> not quite. Yeah. You know, it's not, not quite the same. These new cars are good, but they're not the old cars. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, yeah, a few more things. In um, in 2018, the Cars were finally inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think that's insane because they had been eligible for 15 years at that point. Uh, but they're in now. So that is interesting that yeah. it took that long. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas other bands like a lot of the a lot of like the quotation mark grunge era bands. Uh, the big ones have been getting inducted like really fast. Yeah. So you know, like as soon as they were able. Uh, it's like Nirvana and Pearl Jam. Maybe we must be getting they're... older. If yeah, <laughs> bands from that generation. Are oh, not. I know. It has to be twenty-five years after your first album is when you're eligible. Good grief! Yeah, and now we're feeling has our it age. Been that long? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the nineties. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, uh, I want to throw one more fun fact out before we move on to our last song. It's pretty well known that Rick Ocasek married uh, supermodel Paulina Portskova. Uh, he met her on the set of the music video for Drive, which was a, a big Cars hit. And um, he married her, I don't know, four or five years after that. They had two sons together. And actually, Rick Ocasek's been married three times, and he had two sons with every one of his wives. So he has six sons and no daughters. Wow. Uh, kind of crazy. But one of the reasons I want to bring this up is because there's a band, I think you probably know if I had to guess, I'd say um, you're probably pretty familiar with The Rentals. Yes. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, Matt Sharp's band. He was the original bassist for Weezer. And they put out a fairly successful, at least in like the college rock indie sphere, a pretty successful album. And it had a single on it called Friends of P. Return of the Rentals. Yeah, their yeah, first album. Return of the Rentals. Yeah. And um, a lot of people wondered about this mystery. Who the heck is P? What is this song about? Yeah. The P in Friends of P is actually Rick Ocasek's wife. Paulina Poritzkova. Really? Mm-hmm. I did not know that. And you know, that's one of my all-time favorite albums. Is it? Yeah. Return of the Rentals was, after the Blue Album, that was probably the biggest influence. Really? It, it established the aesthetic, because it was elements of New Wave, elements of the analog synth-driven, mm-hmm. you know, earlier yeah. rock stuff, but, but sort of done in a way that was accessible to that mid nineties, you know, fuzzed out guitars kind of yeah. alternative. I mean, rock I, I would have guessed, I, especially hearing, uh, like the synth player in your band, I, yeah. I get a real strong rentals vibe from that. Oh yeah. 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 That's, yeah. that's definitely deliberate. And mm-hmm. it's definitely something I've been going for, for a long time. Uh-huh. When I met her, that's sort of what we sounded like singing together. Uh-huh. And I was so excited. Yeah. Right, right away she'd sing an octave above me and I go, Oh yeah, that's like the rentals. That's uh-huh. so cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And the rentals album, I I mean, there's a huge cars influence there too. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. In spite of saying the cars would never get back together. I think in, uh, in 2010, uh, Rick Ocasek actually decided to get the cars back together. Now, unfortunately, Ben Orr, uh, the other singer and the bassist for the cars, he had, he had died, I think, in 2000 yeah. of cancer. Um, but the surviving members got back together. They put out an album in 2011 called Move Like This. It actually hit the top 10 on the album charts. That's so great. I'm so glad they did that. Mm-hmm. Me it's too. sad that Orr wasn't a part of it. Yeah. But uh, it's really good. I've listened to it. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I'm really glad they made that. Yeah. And so we're going to listen to a song called Blue Tip. And 
while this wasn't technically a single, as far as I can tell, they did make a music video for it. So it did kind of get out there and, and people heard it. And I read multiple reviews of this album and this song where the reviewers said they thought it sounded like a classic car song and they thought specifically Blue Tip deserves a place amongst their greatest hits. And um, I'm not going to disagree. I think I think it sounds great. I think it would fit right in with their greatest hits. It's up there, man. It's, it's, it's up there with the best. Yeah, and it's, and it's really cool that after so much time they could still put out a song and it's like, this is the Cars. This is good. They haven't lost that pop sensibility. They haven't lost what makes the Cars the Cars. Yeah. So here we go. Blue tip. Trading in the alley, booking up a storm. Forget about reality, because nothing needs to know. I feel like at some point I should have talked about uh, his rhymes. I, like, I, don't know, I don't know how to approach that, but just like it's so memorable to me, like all of his songs that he sings, like they just have these really funny rhyme schemes. Yeah, he's got a quirky lyricism yes. that I really like. I kind of aspire to be more like that. You uh-huh. know, I don't know how he came up with some of that stuff. Yeah, I would feel I would feel silly writing some of the things that he writes. Yeah. But like when he sings it, like it's totally great. Just, yeah, yeah. I would feel self conscious about it, but like, you know what I'm talking about? Like lyrics about rock and roll hairdos and like, you know, <laughs> giving someone a twirl or whatever it is. Yeah. Like, yeah. I like the way she dips. Yeah. It's all about the <laughs> exactly. delivery. Yeah, yeah. I can't even do it the way he does. Yeah. Blue tip. Anything to say about blue tip? It's cool. Mm-hmm. It's a cool song. <laughs> yeah. It's got a nice beat. You know, it's tight production. Yeah. It's it sounds like classic cars. You mm-hmm. Know? I feel like I want to say some kind of closing about Rick, something touching and moving, and that's uh, not something I'm good at. (laughs) Yeah, that's difficult. Well, he definitely left a huge legacy of music behind, and that's as a musician, that's what you aspire to. Yeah, He, he, he influenced my my listening taste he influenced the music that i make he influenced the music you make he influenced uh all these bands we talked about countless bands we didn't talk about modern rock music was much better because of him absolutely yeah and uh he's gonna be missed very much yeah all right hey jonathan if anyone wants to hear your music where should they go look up streetcar conductors Mm -hmm. on Bandcamp or on Facebook. Okay. And uh, you'll you'll hear us there. Okay, great. And if anybody wants to get in contact with me, if you've got questions, if you've got comments, you can reach me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time in January 1991.